Today we're going to hear from uh, one of the staples of the Rock Hills culture and who we are as a church. Al Hasler is going to be sharing a message with us. And uh, I am very grateful for Al's friendship and his example, as I'm sure many of you are. Your lives have been impacted uh, by the the outreach, uh, the generosity, the loving handshakes, the greetings, uh, the encouragement of Al Hasler. And so I'm excited to hear what this guy has to share with us today. So let's give it up for Al. I'm good. I don't need it. Thank you. That means a lot to me because the people in this room are some of the greatest friends I've ever had in my life. But I really want this to be perfectly clear. I did not want to be a Christian. I grew up in upstate New York, predominantly Catholic region, not saying anything bad about the Catholic faith at all. Just my perception, my friends, all they did was complain. This is back in the 60s, right? Oh, I got to go to mass every Sunday, and I got to go to confession once a week, and I can't eat meat on Friday, nothing but complaints. And I was like, why would anybody want to be part of that? And even as I grew older and ran into other Christians, my perception of what it was about were just all these rules. And so I, I developed this idea that God was sort of this grumpy old man up in heaven, and he was like, hmm, what rule can I make to make them miserable today? You know, and, and so I did not want any part of that. And besides, our culture was offering us so many gods that seemed so much more appealing to me. All I had to do was turn on the TV or open a magazine or a newspaper or go to a movie. And what did I see? You know, commercials where they were drinking alcohol and everybody was in hot tubs and having a blast and having a good time. People, you know, so, so the, the culture was promising me the partying was going to make me happy. Or if I made enough money, then I was going to be deliriously happy, or if I had enough, enough nice things like cars and houses, I was going to be totally satisfied. And of course, if you slept around enough and, and had all that experience, you were going to be totally satisfied and happy. And sadly, I indulge in all those things. I bow down to all those gods. I happen to be successful and fairly wealthy, and so I indulged in them to the extent that I could. There was only one small problem. I wasn't happy. In fact, I was empty. I was kind of mean-spirited. I was grumpy. I was anxious. I was selfish. It just wasn't working for me. And I didn't quite understand it. And I didn't have the correct perspective because my thought process is, well, I was married. It's your wife's job to make you happy. I'm not happy. It must be my wife's fault. And so I told Jan I was going to divorce her. And then I think many of you know the story. She had made a faith commitment to Jesus when she was younger that I didn't even know about. And when that happened, when I told her I was leaving, she returned to her faith. And I could see in her a difference, a peace and a contentment Don't get me wrong, she was hurting. I mean, she didn't want this divorce to happen. She wanted our marriage to work. 
But she knew, and I could tell she knew, that she was going to be okay because she had Jesus and she was right with God. And so for the first time in my life, I was truly motivated to look at the truth of the Christian faith because I realized what I had rejected was sort of a cartoon version of the faith, you know, angels with halos and devils with pitchforks. You know, it's like, in my mind, who can believe that stuff? Well, of course, if you're rejecting that, it doesn't make much sense. I mean, it makes sense to reject it if that's what you think it is. But for the first time, I was motivated to actually look to see if Christianity had any compelling logic. And the first question I had to ask was, how did the universe come into existence? That was question number one. You see, there's a couple of competing views that I was looking at. The first, you know, as an engineer, the kind of the worldview, I, I was an educated guy, I'd gone to the Naval Academy, took a lot of sciences and chemistry and geology and all these other things. And what they're saying is, what the world is saying is that the Big Bang is how, what started. And they don't really explain where that matter came from. Nobody really knows. It's a mystery. But they said there's an explosion happened. And from that explosion that went out around the universe, that somehow galaxies and solar systems began to form up. And then planets began to form up. And on this particular planet, Earth, somehow a lightning strike or something hit the primordial ooze and, a, and an organism came into being. And over many, many billions of years through survival of the fittest and evolution and random mutation, that single-cell amoeba began to crawl on the Earth and became more and more complex till finally it became a mammal, and then mammals became chimpanzees and gorillas, and finally us. And that was a very crude description, obviously, of what we call the Big Bang and survival of the fittest and random mutation. And on the other side, there was the Bible. And it said, no, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God created mankind. And I got a clue from my engineering background. I got a clue from this thing called entropy. Entropy. You see, there's the, these laws in, in engineering and physics, and one of them is the second law of thermodynamics. And part of the second law of thermodynamics is this concept of entropy, and I think we have a definition here. It says that everything declines into more disorder. Not only that, it says that all systems go from a state of order to a greater and greater state of disorder. And this is something we experience all the time. It's just, it's actually very intuitive. So a bicycle, by the way, I know Stuart loves to ride bicycles. It's actually a very complex machine. As a mechanical engineer, it combines some very simple concepts, but it's complex. So you have the, the wheel, obviously, you have two of them. Then you have the gearing that makes shifting possible. And then you have the lever. The, the pedal is actually a lever. And you combine all those things, and the bicycle is really an amazing, amazing invention. But if I took that fairly complex and sophisticated machine and put it out in a field and waited a thousand years, you wouldn't expect to come back and find a Lamborghini, right? 
You just wouldn't. Things get more and more go into decline and they become less and less complex. They go into a greater state of disorder. And, and I think an even more pertinent example would be, let's say I put together a time bomb. Let's say I took a sophisticated Rolex as the, as the timing mechanism and, and wires and you know, C2 explosives that, that have to be manufactured very carefully. And I put it in this, this beautiful case and I blow it up. And you wouldn't expect that if I came back in a thousand years, you'd find a nuclear atomic bomb, would you? Of course you wouldn't. It goes into a greater state of disorder. And so as I began to think about entropy, that seemed, it just did not seem logical to me that the Big Bang and this explosion could somehow become more and more complex when all our experience and the laws of thermodynamics seemed to, th seemed to say that things would become less complex and more disordered. But there was a second place that I found some clues, and that's the clues from conscience. And I ran into this argument first with a guy named C.S. Lewis. Now, C.S. Lewis was a brilliant professor at Oxford, and he himself had been an atheist. But he met this great Christian man called J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And he and Tolkien used to go down to the pub, and Tolkien would share the reasons why he was a Christian. And Lewis, as an atheist, would, in his great intellect, would try to counter Tolkien. But ultimately, Lewis became a Christian. And he wrote this thing called the argument from conscience. And you see, in England, they have a system where they line up very neatly. It's considered part of their culture to queue up. You may have heard that word. Brits always like to queue up for things. And if anybody cuts in, oh, that's really bad in their culture. And he said what he noticed was once in a while somebody would cut, but they'd always have an excuse. Oh, you know, I had to do it because of this or because of that. He said, but why would they worry? And, and I was sort of that guy on the roads. I'm that guy that you all hate. Everybody's lining up orderly, and I go zooming around and find the guy who just left a little too much of a crack and cut in front of that person. And everybody's honking at me and hates me. You know, if survival of the fittest were true, I should feel good about that. You know, the lion who survives on the plains of Africa and the Serengeti plains... Survival of the fittest and random mutation says that's the most powerful lion, the strongest lion, the most aggressive lion, the ruthless lion that just tears everything up. They don't have any conscience about you know, eating that gazelle or that impala. And the one that survives is the most ruthless, uh, aggressive lion. So if survival of the fittest is true, why wouldn't I feel really good about myself when I cut in line? I didn't. I felt guilty. I felt bad. But there's an even more powerful argument from the conscience. And C.S. Lewis, being at Oxford, was rubbing shoulders with some of the greatest anthropologists of his time. These were people who would go around the world and study remote civilizations. So some would go into the outback of Africa or Australia and, and you know, talk to the aborigines and some into the jungles of Africa and talk to these remote tribes and some in South America in the Amazon rainforest. And here's what they noticed. Every single culture that they studied knew it was wrong to murder. 
It wasn't like these fancy and learned Oxford professors went there to the tribes in the Amazon rainforest and said, you know, folks, it's wrong to murder. And they go, oh, really? Thank you for telling us that. We didn't know that. That isn't how it went down. They all knew. And as C.S. Lewis reflected on that, he realized that if they all knew, there's only one explanation. And that is, they had been programmed inside. And if they had been programmed, there must be a programmer. And of course, the Bible says in Romans chapter two, that God wrote his law on our heart, that we have a conscience. And so as I thought about entropy and the argument from conscience, I realized that I had become a theist. I'd gone from being an atheist, like my dad, to believing in God, to being a theist. But the next question I had to reflect upon was the Christian worldview. Because not only do they say there's a God like Buddhists and and Muslims and others, but they say that we were separated from God by our rebellion. That we you know, sinned against him. And that separation caused a rift between us and God and that we owed him a debt. But the Christian worldview says that God himself came down in the person of Jesus and paid that debt for us. And I wasn't sure how I was going to figure out whether that was true or not. Because I I knew that the main place that story, that viewpoint was laid out was in the Bible. And even if I read the Bible, it was like, well, I know this thing, this Bible, this book was written, the the accounts of Jesus, more than 2,000 years ago. How can I trust anything 2,000 years old? But as I began to look at the manuscript evidence, what I began to learn that I'd never known before is that historians and virtually every scholar in the world has certain criteria that they look at when looking at manuscripts. They're looking at manuscript evidence. And what they're looking for is if Manuscripts exist, and if they're enough alike. And in particular, it gives even greater weight if they find manuscript evidences around in different regions. So let me give you an example. Let's say I wrote a letter, this long letter about, about my faith, and I sent it to you know, Philadelphia, or I sent it to Australia, and I sent it different places. And a thousand years from now, somebody uncovers that letter. It says, I wonder if Al really wrote this and if it's really authentic. Well, if they find another one in Australia and another one in Europe, and they all are basically identical, then you can be pretty sure that what was happened is that they are identical, that they were copied and, and preserved. Well, that's the way manuscript evidence is weighed as far as whether it's valid or not. And just one small example, uh, we probably all in here believe in Julius Caesar. He lived about 50 BC, about 50 years before Jesus. And he apparently conquered most of Europe. And he wrote down the account of him conquering most of Europe. And he called it the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar. 
Scholars everywhere accept the Gallic Wars of Julius Caesar as a written account of how he conquered Europe. There are exactly 10 manuscripts of the Gallic Wars by Julius Caesar. And yet they're universally believed to be credible and reliable evidence. There are thousands of Christian manuscripts, thousands. And the biography of Jesus is set forth in what we call the Gospels. And there are hundreds and hundreds of those manuscripts called the Gospels. And so I then began to understand that I could rely on the manuscripts, that they were reliable, they were great evidence. But I had one other question. You know, I'm, I'm skeptical. <laughs> I'm a skeptic, and I'm skeptical about human nature because I'm a trial lawyer, and I've had a lot of people lie to me. And my thought process was, well, let's say I was following Jesus, and basically I go all in on this guy, and for three years I follow him around. I think he's going to be the king. I think he's going to take over. You know, I, I basically I invest everything in him, and after three years, he gets arrested and executed, yeah, and I'd be feeling pretty low, and I might have an inclination to lie, to say, yeah, Jesus did all these teachings, uh, and he was executed, yeah, but then he rose from the dead, just like make something up so I wouldn't feel so bad and so foolish. That was my perspective on what they might have done. Yes, the, the manuscript evidence seems overwhelming, and, and it seems clear, but how do we know what they actually wrote down was true? And so I began to read the Gospels, and, and I read them several times. And the first thing I noticed was the person that emerged off the page was truly amazing. I mean, brilliant. The answers he gave to certain questions, the way he addressed things, the way he taught just blew my mind. I, I just kept thinking, this can't be made up. But there's also another sort of... Uh, way I have determined that things are the truth. And that is if somebody is willing to say something about themselves that makes them look bad. That's a second, to me, marker of authenticity. And there are several things in the Gospels that I went through that seemed like, hey, they wouldn't have included this if it wasn't the truth. And then finally, I was reading through, and I'd been through the gospel several times, but for some reason, this particular night, I'm reading Matthew, and I come across this verse, Matthew 26, 56. And Matthew, writing this, one of the disciples, this is what he said. Then all the disciples fled and deserted him. And it was like a lightning bolt went off inside of me. Because like I said, I'm a trial lawyer. I've had many people lie to me. You know, I do litigation, controversies. There's almost always two sides saying very different things, whether it's an industrial accident or a trucking accident or something like that. And I've had a lot of people throw a lot of, I'll say, baloney my way. And I think I've got a pretty good baloney meter over time. But one thing I know is people never ever say something that makes them look bad. And, and, you know, living in the military city, we have another good example of this. Occasionally, reports will surface that, and it's a sad deal, what they call stolen valor. 
You know, maybe somebody will be going to TV stations or on social media, Facebook or whatever, and talk about, oh yeah, I was with such and such a regiment in Afghanistan, the firefight broke out, and it was a pitched battle, and basically I fought bravely and was wounded and blah, blah, blah. And somebody will do a little digging and find out that guy was not telling the truth. That he made that up because he just wanted the approval and to be seen as a hero. And that's called stolen valor. But you know what I've never heard of? I've never heard of stolen cowardice. <laughs> I've never heard of anybody who goes around saying, oh yeah, I was in, with this regiment in Afghanistan. We got attacked and the bullets were flying. And man, I ran, I fled. I deserted my brothers. I mean, nobody does that. But here I was reading it. They fled. They deserted him and fled. And I knew in the depths of my being that if they were willing to tell the truth about that, that they were telling the truth three days later when they said they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And we know through other historical documents of the church and, and outside documents that every one of those disciples except one, John, was martyred for their faith. They went from deserting him and fleeing to going around the world, testifying to him. And every one of those guys died this, these horrible deaths. People don't die for a con. But I still didn't want to give my life to Christ. Even though, as I said, I was anxious and, and selfish and depressed and unhappy and angry, my thought process was, yeah, but all those things I'm doing, you know, all those gods I'm bowing down to, the, the sex and the partying and you know, drugs and money and things. That's the only relief I have from my misery. Why do I want to give that up? This is a miserable existence except for those things giving me occasional relief. What I didn't realize, it's kind of an aside and, you know, message for another day, is Psalm 16.4 says, the sorrows of a man will increase who chases other gods. Those weren't the relief from my suffering. Those were the cause of my suffering. But I didn't realize that at the time. So all I'm thinking is, if I put my faith in Jesus, I'm gonna have to follow these rules. I'll have no more relief from this miserable life. And I just had this longing and I kept longing. And you know, the, the food and the great meals and the great vacations and the money, none of that satisfied me. And I longed for more. And I kept thinking, there's gotta be more. There's gotta be more. I had this longing that nothing is really reaching. And then I came across C.S. Lewis about his own journey. And he said this remarkable quote. He said, if you find within yourself a longing that nothing in this world satisfies, the only logical explanation is you were made for another world. And it's amazing that 3,000 years ago, the wisest man who ever walked the planet was Solomon. And he said in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that God put eternity in our heart. And what he was saying with that, God put eternity in our heart. God gave us a knowing that we were made for something more, that there is an eternity 
And he gave us that knowing as just such a gracious gift because we're never going to be satisfied by things of this world. Never. Only God will satisfy us. And so when I read that, instead of like a lightning bolt, this was like a nuclear bomb. And light flooded in. And I knew that Christianity was a truth. So on February 6, 1989, I put my faith in Jesus. Now, all my questions were not answered. In fact, I still had two that kind of bugged me, and I'm gonna go over those now. But I wanna say this. You know, Jan has a, my wife Jan is amazing. She has a very uncomplicated faith. At about eight or nine, she heard the gospel in church that she had sinned and Humanity had sinned and we were separated from God, but God loved us enough to come down in the form of Jesus and, and pay our debt. And if you put your faith in Jesus, you made right with God. And, and that just resonated with her. She knew it. And so if you have a faith like that, I, I think that's a wonderful thing. But there are some people like me that have to question. So the next question I had to address, and, and this is after I became a Christian, it's like, I still don't get it, Lord. Why do you command us to praise you? And, you know, there's hundreds, hundreds of such verses, but Psalm 148.1 says, praise the Lord, praise him from the heavens, praise him from the heights above. There, there's hundreds of these. And it's like, really? I thought you were this great, infinite, satisfied God. What are you, so egotistical and weak, you need our praise? I, didn't, I just didn't get it. But I'm a voracious reader, and one day I was reading, and I was reading this article in a psychology magazine about the nature of enjoyment. And it said, yeah, you know, survival of the fittest doesn't really explain a lot of our enjoyment, but at the same time, it's a, it's a real phenomenon. And you can sit by yourself and eat a great meal or, or see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful mountain scene, and you'll enjoy that. But as this person studied it over a period of a couple years through various research, it's much more enjoyable to enjoy it with someone. So we've all experienced that. You, you want to go to a concert or a movie. Often you invite somebody, hey, let's go do this together. Or even just going for a walk or going for a bike ride or whatever it is, it's more enjoyable to do it with someone. But he said there's one further step in enjoyment. In fact, the ultimate experience of enjoyment, and that's to express it. So if Jane and I are walking along a beach and it's late in the afternoon and we're walking along and she's here and I happen to look over my shoulder and I see this spectacular sunset, you know what's not gonna happen? I'm not just gonna and keep going and just treasure that in my own mind. I, I mean, it isn't like it's, it's like not possible. <laughs> you look over and what do you do spontaneously? Jan, look, look at that sunset. And you both sit there and you admire it and you look at the purples, look at the way it's glistening on the water. Well, what's going on there? It's worship. God designed us. And that moment, the light went off in my head. God doesn't need our worship. He knows that the way we are designed, that is the ultimate uh, experience of enjoyment, to share it together and to express it together. So when Josh leads us in worship and we're singing together, that is the ultimate enjoyment of God. And that's why he commands us to do that.
And then the final question, uh, big one that I had to ask, um, even though I still have many more as a, as a believer, <laughs> but God's gracious, is why did he create us in the first place? I mean, the Christian worldview is, well, there's a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and they're in perfect relationship. And it's like, well, if they have this perfect relationship, why would they invite us into it and ruin it? I mean, you know, it just didn't make much sense to me. And again, separate reading, not even thinking about this question in particular. I was reading an article about why people have children. And it was a long article. It was pretty good. And it said, the main reason people have children is because they're an incredible economic decision. They become this great profit center in your family. You make all kinds of money from kids. And not only that, emotionally, they're constantly coming up to you and saying how wonderful you are and how grateful you are, they are for you. And what a wonderful parent. Okay, obviously, uh, you know, that isn't, it turns out, by the way, kids are the most stupendously stupid investment you can make. They cost you like $300,000 to raise them. Why anybody would do that is absurd. By the way, dogs are not that great either. Dogs, dogs cost about $2,500 to $3,000 a year. So if your dog lives to 15, you've spent about 50 grand on that dog, so enjoy it. Uh, but the conclusion of this article is right in the face of everybody knowing it's not a good economic decision. They do it anyway. And it turns out that there is tremendous joy and satisfaction in just pouring out unconditional love on a little person or even on a pet. That's the way we're designed. There's something deeply and richly satisfying, even though there probably isn't any hope of real return, it doesn't matter. People continue to have kids in the face of this economic stupidity because deep down they grasp that there's gonna be enjoyment and, and they're, they're made to want to pour out your love. And of course, the Bible says God is love. And then finally, I came across Ephesians 2, 6, and 7. And this is what it has to say. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed and his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Do you get what that's saying? We're, we're the little kid. We're the, we're the pet. In, in a very loving way, I say that. God is love. First John tells us that. And because he is love, he gets enjoyment and satisfaction in simply pouring out his love. And we are going to be the objects of that love for eternity. And that's not going to be boring, folks. I mean, I think everything down here is just a tiny echo of God. Many people in here, Jan and I love going in the mountains. We'll be going there soon. And, and when we get to the top of that hike and you see that incredible view, the beauty just almost takes your breath away. But that's just a tiny taste of the beauty of God. You look at the heavens on a, on a starlit night, especially if you're out of San Antonio where you can actually see the stars, and, 
And the awe that you experience at the vastness is a tiny echo of the awe you'll experience with God. A beautiful song that, that just takes your breath away and, and stimulates all these emotions, that's a tiny, tiny echo of the songs of God. Even pleasure. God is a God of pleasure. In Psalm 16, 4, it says, I will fill you with joy in my, in my presence, with eternal pleasure at my right hand. Eternal pleasure at my right hand. Sign me up for eternal pleasure. I mean, I've always been a hedonist. And what I've realized is God is the only person that will satisfy this hedonism that he put in my heart. The longing for beauty, God will satisfy. The longing for wisdom, I love figuring things out. God is infinite wisdom. The longing for pleasure, the longing for awe, all these things, the longing for relationship, perfect relationship, you will find them all in God and that's why he created us. I'm still on my spiritual journey. I have other questions but I'm trusting God to answer them. And, you know, if you're one of these people like Jan that has an uncomplicated faith, what she's often told me is, Al, you know, I didn't have to ask those questions, but the fact that I know that you asked them and examined them and found this faith compelling, that has encouraged me so much and strengthened my faith. That's what Jan says. So, I hope if you're already a believer, you won't think that this morning is a waste because hopefully you'll be encouraged and strengthened by the, the process I had to go through in deciding as a skeptic whether the Christian worldview held water. And if you are a skeptic, if you hadn't yet put your faith in God, I know something about you. You have a longing Augustine said it in third century. A man will find no peace until he finds peace with God. I know you have a longing and my prayer for you is that you will find satisfaction in that longing by putting your faith in God. And I want to tell you this. Christianity is the truth. And as a Christian man and as an officer of the court and an attorney, everything I've said today is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are love. Thank you that as a loving Father, you've given us your guidelines for a happy and content life. Jesus said, if you'll follow my commands, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. Father, I pray for my friends here that you would strengthen their faith and if there's anyone here who still hasn't put their faith in Jesus, I pray that they'll do that right now or if they have more questions, will feel the freedom and the courage to come speak to me. Father, as we go about our way and finish this Labor Day weekend, please watch over my friends and family here and guide them on the journey home. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.